0: I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this through stories, yours and the stories of other professionals and patients. We listen to each other as a way to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma informed provider or practice. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with patients right away. I am so excited today to be joined by the founders of Tend Health. Um, Dr. Christine Runyon is a clinical psychologist and a professor of, in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts School Medical School. She is the co-founder of Ten Health. After starting her career as a psychologist in the Air Force, she focused her research, clinical service, and teaching on behavioral science and family medicine, as well as promoting models of integrated primary care. Dr. Runyon is also a mindfulness teacher at the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness. Dr. Joan Fleischman is a clinical psychologist and the co-founder of Tend Health. She previously was an assistant professor and director of behavioral health, in the Department of Family Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University School of Medicine. She has spent the majority of her career working in medical settings, leading teams, and building programs to forward the field of behavioral health integration and in primary care. Joan and, Chris- and Christine, otherwise known as Tina, I'll probably call her Tina today, um, started Tend Health at the height of the pandemic in 2020, recognizing the undeniable need for expert mental health services for healthcare professionals. They launched Tend Health, which provides specialized, private, and accessible mental health care and education to healthcare professionals and consultation to healthcare organizations who are willing to invest their most precious resource. Welcome, Tina and Joan. Thank you.
1: Thank Pleasure. you, Amy. Yeah, I'm yeah, glad you're to here too. Here. Yeah.
0: Well, those are your formal introductions. Tina, anything else you want to add about who you
2: are or what you do? Um- Sure. So I'm an avid uh, hiker and reader, a mom of two um, and a dog mom. and um, know a thing or two about uh, trauma, both um, from you know academic study and lived experience. Just I don't know how you get through this work as a caregiver without uh, coming into very close exposure to that. So glad that's a focus of what you offer your listeners.
0: Yeah, 100% agree. Joan, how about you? Anything you would add to your
1: well-equipped bio? Just that I'm an East Coaster, a transplant to the West Coast, and um, I've spent my entire career working in healthcare settings and have spent time in the OR and the ED and ambulatory care, um, walking the wards, rounding, and just spent most most of my time outside of Um, my personal life really in, in medical settings. And I am an avid chef. (laughs) So cooking is my therapy. And a very good one. (laughs) Yes, Tina has, Tina has been able to partake in many a meal. Oh my gosh. That is part of how I take care of myself at the end of the day.
0: And Tina, how did you and Joan come to know one another? Um, And then Joan, maybe I'll ask you then, how was Tend Health born from there? Like, so Tina, I'll let you start.
2: So Joan and I met in 2012 at the time I was directing a two-year postdoctoral fellowship on integrated uh, primary care. So psychologists who were learning to um, work and teach and play in integrated care settings. And so Joan joined me at the University of Massachusetts for her postdoctoral fellowship uh, in 2012, and we have stayed in touch ever since. Nice.
0: And then, you know, when I was reading your bios, you know, the thing that that obviously sticks out is Tend Health was kind of born during the height of the pandemic. Um, can you speak to that, Joan, and just what that meant for the two of you to combine forces?
1: Yeah. So Tina and I had been kind of hatching a plan to do something together. Um, we weren't quite sure what. We were still both in our um, academic medicine positions and trying to figure out how we could serve the healthcare community with our skill sets. And then COVID happened. Um, and we saw the incredible need for uh, uh, mental health services and support for healthcare professionals and healthcare workers across the country in that first you know, 90 days of the pandemic in 2020. And we just decided to fast track <laughs> our plan and um, launch. Uh, we just started with creating community with our conversations with clinicians, with just an online venue for people to gather and come together. and. Just name the experience they were having, and that really grew into Tend Health, which we now provide mental health services um, in 40 states, <laughs> um, and uh, both uh, counseling and some medication management to healthcare professionals across the country. So we really, um, we were, we were just uh, two friends with a passion for. Um, serving uh, the mental health needs of, of physicians and um, nurses and all the people who are caring for our family members, our friends in the hospital who need medical care. And um, that's where Tend Health grew from just a small idea to now um, a large organization serving uh, many, many healthcare professionals across the country.
0: Yeah, so for our listeners, I'll link up to Tend Health's website in the show notes it is an incredible resource of, first of all, a lot of free information and support for those people in healthcare professions and organizations, but also a really good way to get in touch with Joan and Tina and other folks that work with them. Um, Tina, can you say a little bit more about what Tend Health is doing to address the needs of healthcare professionals?
2: Um, It's my pleasure to. So we not only saw this need, as Joan mentioned, and some of that came from um, kind of the work that we do with our colleagues and seeing the the lack of particular kinds of resources in terms of mental health services. So we have a particular model of care at Tent Health trying to address what we saw as the primary pain points, particularly for physicians seeking care. And there's such an unmet need for reasons that have to do with culture and for reasons that um, actually are really, um, unfortunately, sort of systematically supported through issues around the harms that can come if somebody seeks mental health care. So I'll try to be succinct in this, but essentially we have a, you know, we have an overwhelming issue of burnout in our in our healthcare professionals. Um, and we have high rates of depression and anxiety that go untreated. Um, and so, in addition to sort of the culture that does not promote help seeking, there are some real issues that you've probably talked about with other mm-hmm. um, with other guests, and you know very well in terms of once you seek care and have a diagnosis in your record, if you seek care through you know traditional means in terms of health insurance, using your health insurance benefit that is a discoverable diagnosis. And so some licensing applications or relicensing applications or hospital credentialing forms ask about, have you been diagnosed with a mental health or substance use condition in the last X number of years or treated for this? And so if you've gone down that that route, you have to report yes to that. Um, It's a discoverable uh, uh, um, diagnosis that also can impact people getting disability insurance or rates that you would pay for life insurance. And so one of the issues with that is that when somebody comes to um, a mental health provider to get help, even if it's for something like burnout, using their insurance benefit, as a clinician, I have to give you a diagnosis or I don't get paid
1: right? If I don't give you a, di- a
2: mental health diagnosis, I can't submit to your insurance company and be reimbursed for that service. So um, it really forces the hand to give a um, uh, really see it through a pathological lens and to give somebody a diagnosis that then they have to report on these various means. So we really wanted to solve for a lot of those pain points for physicians to promote help seeking um, and to try to address as best we could the the, um, the, the barriers that are there, including um, stigma, by making it really easy for them to try to access care. So, our model of care is outside of traditional insurance, whether we work with organizations or individuals. And, um, and it allows us to approach it from a perspective of um, being a healthcare provider has endemic stressors. And exposures to trauma that are unlike any other profession, and to expect that people are not going to suffer in some way under that context, um, Rachel Naomi Remen has a beautiful quote around sort of it's like expecting somebody to be able to walk through water without getting wet, right? Your favorites. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna get you're gonna get wet. You're gonna feel this, and what we know is when it is um it is compartmentalized to an extreme or over time it has pernicious effects on people's coping strategies on their relationships on their their uh, relationship with themselves their health um so so we want to um sort of dismantle that by taking it in a way that's extremely private and that is very low friction in terms of access to care. So we want people to be able to access a high quality mental health practitioner very, very quickly and not have to spend the better part of a week um, interfacing with their insurance company or figuring out who to go to for what. Mm -hmm. Um, All of our clinicians also have a lot of cultural competency in caring for um, healthcare professionals. They understand what it's like to to work in ambulatory or inpatient settings. And so we wanna provide um, again, what we think is the most precious resource in healthcare, doesn't matter how sophisticated our technology gets, um, when somebody is suffering, they want a person and they want a person who can pay attention, who can sit beside them and who has a deep well of empathy and compassion to draw on. And when people are burned out or they don't have that resource themselves, that well is dry. Mm-hmm. And so we want to be able to be that resource for people quickly, accessibly privately when they need it, how they need it. And with that expertise that they deserve. Oh my gosh.
0: I I'll link up in the show notes to the many episodes we've done around physician burnout. There are a lot of examples of physicians telling their own harrowing stories, um, stories about burnout and the lack of access to, to exactly what Tina was just talking about, which is, I was scared to reach out for help. I thought I would lose my license. I thought I would lose my privileges at the hospital. And so I didn't, and things just got worse. And really what you're doing at Tent Health is saying, we're going to remove that barrier for you. Exactly. Um, Joan, what are you noticing... So that people who might be listening, physicians or nurses or other healthcare providers, you know, on this podcast, we talk about trauma and medicine and Tina hit on a couple of things like poor poor coping tools or poor relational health. What are things that you're noticing amongst healthcare professionals that might be like kind of an indicator for them that they're experiencing vicarious trauma or symptoms of burnout that they might start watching for?
1: you know the very first thing that comes to mind is when you've worked with a patient and um you're you're going home or it's the next day or two after and you're you're still replaying the story of whatever happened with the patient um in your in your head you can't quite move past it or you you haven't quite um processed it and i think that's one of the things that i start to um, that I hear from folks who, um, it's a sign, sign to me that there's something there for us to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and specifically, not necessarily for burnout, but for a trauma exposure or something that, um, they, they would benefit from having a contact with a mental health provider to kind of talk through what, what kind of got activated for them and what's, um, and particularly, we, we see a lot of exposures of um, things that happen in the hospital or in clinic that are really scary. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. really, really scary. And there's not an opportunity. We're going so fast in our days and you're moving on, next thing, next patient, next paperwork, this thing, driving your kid to soccer. Like it's, <laughs> there's not a lot of time to name what um, the experience has just happened. And to be able to start to put meaning towards that and understand how that might touch something in um, your own past or other experiences you had. So, so I'll say that. And then the the other piece I think is that the the, um, the indifference that we see and the um, the moments that at least my patients will talk about where you know they said you know I used to really like this mm-hmm. and now I just want to get through the day Mm -hmm. and this um I I used to really care about my patients it's really scary to me that I'm not feeling the same kind of passion around the care I'm providing or the um the the interactions I'm having I'm I'm finding myself feeling a little hardened or less compassion or less emotion in those um interactions. Mm-hmm. And, and I find that people are very distressed by that because that's not who they are. Right. That's it's not, not who they
0: are. Medicine. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. Cause I know that the brilliance that the two of you hold, um, on an organizational level, Tina, right? Like I think about a, a friend and colleague of mine who was in charge of the PICU, Right. And what he would probably say to you is that's a great idea that I should process all the loss that I'm experiencing. But like, how many times a day did you want me to do that? Because I experienced six losses today or three losses. And am I supposed to do that with all of my nurses? And so how do you address that at an organizational
1: level?
2: So I think there's two questions I, I kind of hear embedded in that, in that, um, some exposures are greater than other exposures. And oftentimes that has a lot to do with us as an individual and less to do with the details of the exposure. And what I mean by that, and to sort of picking up on, on Joan's point in terms of um, what, what she talked about is oftentimes the intensity of the exposure has something to do with our relatability to it or our past experiences, right? So if you are the parent um, of, some, of, a, of an eight-year-old boy and something, you know, a, a near drowning of a nine-year-old boy comes into the emergency room, that's a very different experience than somebody who, um, you know, maybe uh, doesn't have kids or has, you know, has 10 grandkids or something, right? So, so and also based on previous, um, other previous bad outcomes, if you're seeing somebody or you're having a loss that has um, some uh, some imprint from a previous experience. That's going to hit one very differently. So at the individual level, exposures are not um, standardized in that way. And so knowing, having some self awareness to understand that the one that is sticking with me that's because it's pinging off of something that has to do with us, not just the exposure. And so that can, a mental health professional can be very helpful with that, right? To really understand like why this one, not that one. That one was so much more, you know, everybody's reacting to that one, but I'm reacting to this one. So it's not every loss. And there is, um, you know, there is a, um, a resiliency that's built up through the work that you do because there's also those wins, right? And it's healthcare, practitioners in general, there's going to be much more focus on the thing that went wrong than all of the things that went right. So that's another thing that kind of working with a mental health professional can do is begin to sort of broaden the aperture of the, of the perspective to say, oh, because I actually did have these wins and I actually showed up really well in these cases. It's just that there's not a lot of room for imperfection in medicine. So immediately the focus goes to what went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in terms of, so I just want to pick up on that on the individual level, at the organizational level, um, you know, we were, uh, I've listened to the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek uh, Murthy, who has a real interest in healthcare um, worker well-being and, uh, and mental health. And when he was asked this question at a conference recently of sort of what is the number one Um, approach that organizations can take to address clinician well-being. His answer was both um, affirming and surprising actually. He said the number one thing an organization can do is provide um, access to high quality mental health care in a culture that promotes um, and destigmatizes help seeking. Yes. so, so from an organizational perspective, you know, that kind of help can look differently. And I, and I will just sort of um, double click on this just for a minute, because I think a lot of organizations are struggling to solve for this and are trying very hard to solve for this, but often solve for it on the backs of the very people who need the most help. Mm-hmm. They solve for it with volunteer workforce, with I'm I'm a f- fan of, you know, sort of peer support uh to be available, but um uh, but we, we tend to solve for this on the backs of the people, including the mental health workforce or expecting people to sort of be volunteer in this capacity and in a crisis that's wonderful and we should do it and we should all roll up our sleeves and show up. We are past the acute crisis in terms of a long-term sustainable solution. The way an organization can really value their workforce is to, to pay for it, honestly. If you wanna see what organizations value, look in their budgets not their taglines.
0: my gosh. I love that. Right. The value really is going to come in. Like, where are we investing our resources, our financial resources to help our helpers?
2: Yes, exactly.
0: Oh, um, how do you, I, I love the example you gave about, you know, the unique experience that a, that a individual provider might have in terms of how it impacts him or her. Joan, what do you say to your clinical leadership teams who are maybe asking the same question I posed before, which is like, okay, this isn't impacting me, but I see that it's impacting my team. What can I do for my team?
1: It's a big question. I think there, there are some very um, simple I think, you know, I don't want to be a broken record <laughs> with Tina and just kind of say what she said over again. However, I think, you know, looking at what is available to them um, right now, typically an organization um, provides health care plans where mental health is covered through your health care plan. Well, how how accessible is mental health through that health care plan? Mm-hmm. What? Um, typically, large organizations have an employee assistance program. What is that experience like? Is that actually meeting the need? Um, how long, uh, who, who are you actually speaking to when you call an employee assistant? Um, how many invasive questions do they ask before you actually get connected with someone who can support you? Mm-hmm. Um, really understanding just because you have these things as part of your organizational benefits package, what the experience is. Um, for your team individual the individuals on your team and I I think also uh you know Amy I think we've talked a lot about in the past around how do you create a kind of a a trauma informed um workplace and how do you foster self-awareness um to know when you are as a leader um knowing how to identify when someone is struggling on your team um helping your other team members be able to uh, have the skills to ask each other um hey i'm noticing this do you need do you need a break um how are you doing uh you know like um this these last few days have been really hard for me how are you handling them or being able to give them scripts and language and and to start to be able to talk about these things uh and for leadership to be comfortable with talking about the endemic stressors that healthcare professionals are exposed to every day and not 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 have them be the elephant in the room or be swept under the rug mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, I think there's the 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 bigger like organizational pieces of like really just because you have these benefits in place are they really accessible and meeting the need and then really kind of some of the basics around um, that, like starting that culture change around taking that, getting rid of the stigma and starting to really speak to um, what, what people are experiencing themselves, but also um, how to start to talk about it um, in dyads and small groups, but having to be part of the culture and what you're, mm-hmm. what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. You know, when I talk with clinical leadership, really what you're asking them and what I'm asking them to do is model humanity and be a bit vulnerable to create that culture. And I would say that's not well taught in medical programs, right? I mean, Tina, you do a lot of work with medical programs. How do we begin to destigmatize that and create a culture of relational health and relational leadership?
2: Yeah, I think to, to Joan's point, it is, um, it, it's not through PowerPoint, you know, it's not through a lecture about doing these things. It is absolutely through modeling and through the experience of doing it. And sometimes that means the leaders at multiple levels of leadership to have those experiences themselves first in um, a sort of safe and, and sometimes constructed way. Like we can't just tell them to do it or expect that they can sort of drop all of their history from their own training, you know, sort of becoming a physician is, I mean, it's such a, um, it's such a privilege Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a really grueling, arduous, expensive journey Mm -hmm. and particularly people who are not multiple generation physician families, right? It's for many of them, they're, you know, they may be first generation college and then sort of forge ahead and do this. And so they really have to armor up. Mm -hmm. They really have to armor up to get through. And then they can't just be told, okay, now dismantle all of that. And that's how you're going to be successful. So, so um, I, I think it's not an educational proposition. It's not, you don't do this by more information. You do this through, um, through experience and, um, and seeing the sort of natural rewards that come from that. So I don't know that we can just expect our leaders to do it, but I agree with Joan that it has to come um, by the experience. And then people say, Oh, that was really different. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, that actually felt better. I seem to be managing this better.
0: I love that Tina. It's not educational. It's experiential. That's, that's how the change will occur. Um, but
2: medicine is so top down. I mean, their culture is so top down and and very data driven and for all good reasons. So it's, how do you, how do you parse? What can we, what, where do we um, really leverage when we need this sort of top-down database, informational medical knowledge, right? That comes from that direction. So I'm not saying, you know, sort of get rid of that, but how do you have that discernment to say, some of these other skills, which we're not so good at kind of baking into the curriculum, if you will, we sort of can teach, you know, procedural competency and that comes experientially and by doing. We, we teach medical knowledge by sort of straight kind of plumbing education, sort of, you know, top down, but we really need to bolster this part of the, this leg of the stool um, that isn't gonna come from kind of learning the, you know, four strategies of compassionate leadership. It's important to sort of have a frame, but it actually doesn't nudge the needle unless people really experience it.
0: Well, and I, I'm going back to this idea about showing value by putting, you know, kind of your your money where your mouth is, so to speak. And one beautiful way you could use that hierarchy, right, is to say, there's a cost of not doing this. And so we're going to provide it for everybody, right? Because
2: I mean, organizations are seeing that in terms of the level of attrition in the nursing workforce and the physician workforce. I think a 2021 JAMA report said you know two of five physicians are planning to leave or reduce clinical practice. Thirty to forty percent of nurses are reducing it. The organizations are feeling it because they're having to pay for travel nurses because they can't sustain their internal nursing workforce, um, and the cost of replacing you know a uh, Um, A specialized physician who uh, attrits and leaves uh, the organization, and not to mention, sort of the worst form of kind of leaving, um, is is dying by suicide, and that costs an organization estimates from one to two million Mm dollars per per physician if they if they leave the institution um, Mm -hmm. or leave the practice of medicine. So there is a there is a huge cost that's not being you know attributed to this. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like if you're a healthcare organization and you are data-driven, please go back and just replay the last 30 seconds of what Tina just said, right, about the huge amount of cost to our healthcare system, let alone to the people that love healthcare providers and other helpers and can't afford to lose them. Um,
1: Can I say something to that, Amy? I I think I think the other piece and this is a little um this is not necessarily tend health mission but the other piece this is adjacent to is what is a, what is a sustainable amount of work for any one of our healthcare professionals and right. I think you've talked you've talked a lot about this with other guests is this idea of what um you know full time 1.0 fte clinician that that is not in this day and age, a sustainable uh, amount of work um, mm-hmm. to go on and on and have a 40-year career in medicine. So I think we also we we endorse a call to action around what is a sustainable schedule, an amount of work, and a patient load, the number of people you can see in a day um, that is sustainable. Mm-hmm. And I think we're not we're not we're not seeing that movement yet. Um, but I think it's coming mm-hmm. as we see more and more people have uh, 0.6 FTE, 0. 0.7 FTE nurses working one or two days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we, that is one of my, you know, kind of called action here. It's kind of adjacent to this conversation, which is around what is really a sustainable schedule yeah. um, and an amount of hours to do this work that has such a, it's such a high level and high intensity work, depending on kind of what specialty you're in or what kind of patient population you work in. But we're sit- most people are sitting with people who are suffering in some way, who are hurting in some way, who are scared. Um, and, and that takes a certain amount of energy that we, we don't necessarily account for when you ask a sports medicine, medicine physician to see 30 people in a day. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just not. Yeah. So I'll, I'll stop there.
0: No, no, I, it's such a good point. And I'm going to link up to Dr. Dominic Corrigan's, uh, episode. He, um, admittedly by his own story almost took his life, um, and experienced high amount of burnout and, uh, suffered with some addiction difficulties. And if you listen to that episode, you'll hear the whole thing, but to your point, Joan. Um, he was replaced by three FTEs when he left the hospital. Um, there were it took three FTE people to fill the position that he was filling. Um, it was too late for him because he, um, had decided to leave healthcare at that point. But, um, I hope people that are listening hear Jones call to action, right. And reevaluate, begin to reevaluate what this means, even if your provider or the healthcare professional looks okay. Um, yeah,
2: this is, I mean, this is also about leadership because medicine, um, like other, there are some other professions too, that highly, highly reward self-sacrifice.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So can can either of you think of a story, because I think we learn through stories, um, either with an individual that Tend Health has worked with or an organization that Tend Health has worked with that you saw kind of maybe hesitation from the beginning, and then this experiential process and kind of coming on board, and then positive outcome, I'm sure you must have hundreds, but is there one that sticks out to either of you?
1: We're we're passing because we're like, oh, which story to tell? <laughs> sure,
2: there are so many. And thinking really of an amalgam, I think of of individuals um, that uh, you know have some some skepticism, have a lot of questions in the beginning in terms of our model of care. And when we partner with organizations, you know, our organization um, sort of supports our service but it's available to clinicians sort of the end users and so they're trying to really suss out how separate is this from my organization is it really private do they have access really nothing goes to my insurance so a lot of questions and skepticism um, and uh and and i think that's very appropriate from what they have been sort of told there is such a strong um, kind of unwritten curriculum, that hidden curriculum in medicine around um, self-sacrifice, around sort of toughen up, suck it up. Um, this is just how it is. And so, um, so I'm thinking of a, um, a somebody that I, uh, that I saw that was in kind of a, a leadership position and had been in a position of suggesting this service actually <laughs> to, um, to a lot of other people. Um, and then, sort of, you know, through a combination of things related to work and a history of anxiety, um, had a um, pretty significant panic attack, and then coupled with some relationship difficulties, sort of said like, you know, I have, I have, you know, probably sent 15 people your way, um, and you know, he, here I am, sort of both um, reluctantly and also incredibly appreciatively. Um, and through, um, a, you know, a series of, uh, of care really was able to um, support him through uh, these panic attacks that he was having and reduce his overall anxiety and um, manage some of the, um, the dissolution of, a, of an important relationship for him and um, transition to sort of, you know, our last few sessions were really much more around kind of uh, I think mentoring and um, kind of affirming kind of what, what lessons were learned for him really in the culture of medicine and how he not only didn't want to sort of go on to recommend this service, but actually bake in changes because of what he learned. Um, so it's not just that message of, Oh, you should go talk to somebody because mm-hmm. you're having a problem and the culture is what it is, but saying, Oh, Oh, this is bi-directional the culture is actually increasing the likelihood that people are experiencing these things and maybe because of my unique position i can do some things that actually maybe decreases the need of the number of people i need to recommend this service <laughs> to you know um so kind of an amount i mean there's a little bit of like similar stories but thinking of him in particular and sort of the the aha that he got sort of after going th- going through the process of seeking care and the last few sessions were really about thinking, how do you kind of integrate some of this, knowing that the culture was also amplifying his anxiety?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a beautiful example. And I love the the underscore of bi-directional, right? Helped him, helped his organization, begin changing culture or the capacity to change culture. Really incredible. Um You know, Joan, you mentioned, you know, low friction in terms of like accessibility. If I'm listening right now to this podcast and I go on TendHealth's website, how many steps
1: am I away from help? It's um, two very simple steps. First, browse the clinicians in your state because all of mental health clinicians need to have a state by state license. So look at who is available, see who you might connect with. We have bios. Um, I think a picture is worth a thousand words. So (laughs) check out everyone's smiles. Um, And then uh, simply go into their schedule. You are going to access your clinician directly. So you look at their schedule, find a time that works for you, And then you'll just enter a few pieces of information. We need to know your name, of course. And um, we of course need to know your email address so we can email your appointment confirmation. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's about it. You um, just make an appointment request and we will get back to you uh, very very quickly around um, confirming that appointment request. And then you would meet with your clinician as soon as tomorrow. We almost all of our clinicians have next day availability. be able to meet with your clinician uh over zoom it's a HIPAA compliant zoom and uh have a a video consult with them so it's it's very easy
0: I don't have to give you my insurance no no insurance you're not going to diagnose (laughs) me it's not going to go to the medical board no no okay um I mean, proudly, this podcast is reaching people all over the country and the globe. And so I know that there's someone listening right now who needs to hear that message. And by the way, y'all, we have a mental health crisis. And so to hear Joan say that you could have an appointment tomorrow or in a, a day or so that works with your schedule versus six or eight or 12 weeks from now is breaking barriers for mental health accessibility especially for primary care providers, for healthcare organizations, for helpers that are out there. So I hope you take advantage of that. And, and then on the organizational front, Tina, right. If I'm listening to, to you and Joan and I'm like, ah, I need someone to come in. Like I can I alone cannot fix this problem. How can I have 10 health come and talk to my organization?
2: Like, can you talk a little bit more about that work that you do? yeah um so we have a couple of different ways we can work with organizations and we are um, I think we are robust enough to have um, some experiences about what works and doesn't work and we can offer a lot of bespoke uh, solutions as well. We're not coming in with a completely off the shelf. Um, solution that we're going to say, we know this is what you need for your organization. And so we kind of want to have that be very collaborative and, and kind of listen. So very easy to get in touch with either of us. It's our, you know, email connect at ten 10.health um, or um, either one of us directly. But we have um, curated a couple of uh, courses that we offer that are, you um, available for continuing education if that's what's what the organization is interested in. But we've done them a lot, just working with organizations and teams of organizations around trauma-informed um, leadership or um, healthcare during challenging times or a self-compassion for clinician course. So we have a couple of courses that have um, I kind of, they're, they're sort of inverse to information to experience. So we offer, you know, 25% information. So people have a common language um, and reference point, but they're very experiential as well. So um, they are therapeutic without being group therapy um, or therapy in particular. So it doesn't really matter kind of in terms of the regulated uh, piece that Joan was talking about. And so we love to work with organizations and teams in that way. So we've kind of packaged some content that we think has some universal applicability in medicine, um, but also want to be um, really responsive to whatever might be happening within an organization. And um, and the idea that you know, like you said, somebody says, "I can't do this alone." It's like, yes, it's a really, <laughs> it's a really, it's a Sisyphusian process to think you're going to push that boulder up the up the hill. Alone, because this really is about uh, kind of it's about culture and about people reinforcing um, the supportive and helpful things and dismantling the ways of responding that are historical and, and actually have proven to be quite unskillful and propagate burnout rather than propagate resilience. Oh my gosh.
0: I, we could talk for another hour about that, Tina, I'm sure. But yes, yes. Check out all the ways that Tend Health can help with that. Um, okay. So we're ready to kind of move into the last part of our podcast, which is a little bit more rapid fire, Uh, but let me start with you, Joan.
1: Why is this work important to you? I think that we, um, as a society, have undervalued our healthcare workforce, and this is an opportunity to support them and um, help them support their patients. We rely on our healthcare workforce to take care of our, our people and our, my brother, my mother, my grandmother. So I want to um, be part of um, supporting the people who are supporting the people.
0: Mm, Yes. Okay. How about for you, Tina? Why is this work important?
2: I think very, uh, very similar to Joan. I think after you spend, um, all of my career has been in kind of traditional healthcare settings and I watched too many, um, well-intentioned kind of, you know, bright eyed, deeply compassionate, brilliant clinicians, um, just very, you know, took a took a nosedive under the weight of this work because they weren't adequately resourced. They, they, they knew so much, right? They could have passed their board exams on day one mm-hmm. of, of training. But they didn't know how to resource themselves um, and hold on to why they came into this work. And I saw so, too many, too many people go through that process and I thought, if this is happening almost with predictability we're doing something wrong and i think medicine as a discipline has been a little bit slow to open its doors to an interprofessional perspective honestly mm-hmm. but there is a lot of lockdown of we can we can solve it ourselves <laughs> and i think there are just beautiful magical things that happen it's happened in my own um, experience as a psychologist to learn from physicians, to learn from other other disciplines in mental health, to learn from um, software engineers right <laughs> to learn from you know poets, I, I learn a ton from poets to learn from writers, right And so so to open up those doors, let in other professions that say, I don't know how to, Um, how to treat somebody's cancer, but I actually have spent a lot of time understanding this interplay between mind and body, and I have something to offer with respect to how to help treat the person who's experiencing cancer. Um, And so we can do that when it comes to patients, but medicine has been very slow to do that related to solving this issue of of burnout and mental health crisis within medicine. And so my interest in doing it is really for kind of the the countless colleagues that I saw suffer and, and just working in that, that space myself for so long, um, having my own experience of depletion, you know, burnout depletion of just not feeling resourced enough to continue to the work that I wanted to do, um, and trusting that we um, collectively that we can uh, kind of address this. So, oh my nice. gosh, I love the I love that Int- intra-professional right
0: work um, now. I didn't have this question kind of prescribed, but you said something so beautifully that I'm going to, I'm going to ask both of you to say this, like, how would you respond to this? Instead of I alone can fix this problem, or we alone can fix this problem. What do you want people to think about, Tina?
2: Well, I guess there is that sort of adage around, you know, the same kind of thinking that created a problem can't be the same kind of thinking that that solves the problem or something like that. I'm sure I'm completely destroying Albert Einstein. Yeah. Who I think it was sort of reference. Um, but really to envision, you know, um, what, what would it look like? Um, because I think sometimes we have a problem and in our reductionistic way, kind of in many disciplines in medicine in particular. So we pick around the edges, mm-hmm. right? And we try to get it changed by, by really pressing on very, very small levers to fix the problem. And that's not where transformation happens, mm-hmm. right? Transformation takes time, but it also takes innovation and it takes vision and it takes disruption. Mm-hmm. Transformation is gonna take somebody say, how do we want this to be? Mm-hmm. And maybe we start to build models around how we want it to be not trying to fix around the edges of the problem that we created. Awesome. Oh my gosh. Joan, what would you add to that? This
0: shift from I alone can solve this problem. We alone can, to, to what, what do you
1: envision? Well, I, I don't know of any culture change that is, (laughs) that has been made and it's sustainable by one group or one person or one organization. This is going to be, um, multi-layered and multi-leveled um change that needs to occur and it, it is kind of like you need to think globally and act locally and act and act globally mm-hmm. so I think there's there's going to you know we we know that um health insurance companies have a big play in how healthcare is delivered that needs, there is going to need to be change on that level. There's going to need to be change on the policy level, and government level, organizations, teams, and individuals. And so I think not to get stuck in, oh my gosh, this is such a big thing that it's never going to change because I can't change it by myself, but rather there's going to be a lot of layers and a lot of different areas that we can affect change in, but also um, being able to. I think one of the most powerful things is to be a role model. And -hmm. you talk about this with kids so much, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's being a role model. If someone sees me picking up trash on my street, they're Mm -hmm. more likely to pick up trash on their street. (laughs) And same thing with all of the little things that we can do in every individual interaction. If someone sees me leaving early one day, -hmm. So I can go take a walk in a beautiful area where the cherry trees are blooming because that's what resources me. They're more likely to feel like it's okay for them to do something that resources them. Yeah. So so it's a it's a it's a big answer, but
0: no, no, it's a it's it's really helpful, I think, to people that are listening. Absolutely. Okay. Just a couple questions left. Um, Tina, one thought or phrase to that young bright eyed brilliant first year out of medical school practicing provider. What would you say to him or her?
2: Thank you. Thank you for your willingness to serve others. Thank you for your, um, dedication to, um, to your education, to this profession. Yeah. Just a lot of gratitude.
0: Oh, I feel kind of teary-eyed hearing that. I don't know that we hear that very often.
2: I would just say, I see
1: you. Mm. Because I think that there, um, being a physician in particular is very glorified in this country. Mm-hmm. And um, it is not always a um, easy job. It is a very hard job. And it's more than a job. It, it becomes your identity. And to be able to say, I see you.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you both so much. Okay. Last question. Super, uh, hopefully easy for, for you. It's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What are you reaching for, Joan?
2: <laughs> um,
1: you know, I have like five dinners. Is that, <laughs> oh, I'm always eating every time. Jean and I have a meeting. I'm always eating. It's like, what is that? What kind of salad do you have? What? Is, what's, <laughs> what's, toast? what's on your toast? Um, 11 o'clock at night. Uh, Gosh, um, I don't eat at night. That's, I don't know. What would I grab? You thought this Uh, was going to be an easy question. I know. (laughs) Um, The unrapid fire. um, Well, so someone opened our freezer the other day and was like, oh my God, you have a lot of ice cream. I said, well, we just buy in bulk, but it takes us like seven months to go through it. Um, But probably mint chocolate chip ice cream.
0: Awesome!
2: I'm so (laughs) glad you took a while because it gave me time to like formulate my answer. Although I'm on a date kick, so mine would be a medjool date with uh, two dark chocolate chips uh, in the middle.
0: Oh, yum! Yum!
2: Yeah,
0: wonderful. Um, I, after interviewing and speaking to many, many folks on this podcast, I am 100% reassured that we can fuel the healthcare system on ice cream, popcorn, and whiskey. That's what my qualitative (laughs) data is showing us so far. (laughs) Um, So thank you, Joan and Tina. Uh, We'll put the link to Tend Health in the show notes today. Um, From the bottom of my heart, as a fellow mental health uh, professional and psychologist, Thank you for being disruptors in this field. Thank you for the compassion and care you bring to all of the systems and individuals whose lives you are certainly changing. I appreciate that I share this sphere with you. um, And thanks for being here today.
1: Thank you. Our pleasure.
0: Well, that's it friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you and keep sharing your own because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.